0: Indeed, thank you for your singing. That song is a perfect introduction for our sermon today because we will be in the book of Hebrews and really chapters 5 through 10 are unfolding what it means for Christ to be our great high priest. And so that song is so fitting for us to sing as we approach the scripture this morning. I want to call our attention this morning to what we are doing right now. Right now in corporate worship, as we have prepared ourselves this morning and come together to sing, to give, to uh, hear the word of God, to minister our gifts to one another, to take in the Lord's table, uh, our time of prayer. What is the weekly gathering of the church all about? What does it look like to draw near to the holy God in worship? Do we just casually come whenever? Whenever? And however, we come up with in our own minds. I think our scripture reading passage this morning, if you will, turn back there to Leviticus chapter 9, uh, really draws out this principle for us of how significant of a matter it is to draw near to the holy God in worship. Here you have two distinct parties you have Moses and Aaron who are seeking to carry out the word of the Lord. I started in verse 18 because I wanted to include in verse 21 that phrase, just as Moses commanded. God was telling Moses, here is how you are to approach me in worship. Here's how you are to draw near to me. And it took Sacrifice. Chapter 9 is all about the sacrifice for a sin offering that um, Aaron and the other priests, his sons, were carrying out before the Lord. And they did so as the Lord commanded. And what was the result? Blessing. The Lord was pleased to bless the people of Israel, even to, uh, in some respect, demonstrate His glory to them. In verse 23, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, and fire comes out from the presence of the Lord and consumes their offering. God was well pleased because they did what God commanded them to do. They carried out the sacrifice as God intended, and they responded with worship, and they fell on their faces in verse 24. And you have quite a contrast. In chapter 10, verse 1, two sons of Aaron, these are priests, they should know better. They're hearing the word of the Lord. They have heard God speak. They've heard all the requirements for uh, priests in the book of Exodus. In verse 10, or verse 1 of chapter 10, now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective firepans because... That's what priests have to uh, do burnt sacrifices. And after putting fire in them, they placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord. The important thing to understand here is the last phrase of verse 1, which he had not commanded them. They're doing what's right in their own eyes, whether they were trying to improve upon the work of Moses and Aaron previously, or they thought, oh, God will be really pleased when we show Him what we can do with our fire pans. Nonetheless, they are coming in their own wisdom, in their own strength, and how does God respond to that? Fire came out from the presence of the Lord, just like back in verse 24. It sounds like a good thing, until you see the object that is consumed is not the sacrificial offering, it is Nadab and Abihu themselves. Fire consumed them, and they died before the Lord. I don't want to highlight how Moses and Aaron respond. Moses calls back to what God had said to him earlier in Exodus. He says, it is what the Lord spoke. In other words, this is what we should have expected to happen. When someone disregards the word of God and they as sinners draw near to a holy God in their own wisdom, doing whatever they feel to be right. God had said earlier, by those who come near me. It's come near me is the Old Testament equivalent of a phrase we'll highlight in Hebrews to draw near. So, by those who draw near, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. Notice that last phrase so Aaron therefore kept silent. Aaron might be thinking here he's got to speak on behalf of his sons that were just consumed by fire from the Lord. But he keeps silent. Why? Because he knows God is just to punish the wickedness of coming in their own strength according to their own desires. They came offering false worship and God takes worship of himself seriously. You can make your way to Hebrews chapter 10 now. I just want to set the stage for... Hebrews 10 will primarily be in verse 19 through verse 25, but we will um, dip our toes, so to say, in verse 26 to 31 for a few moments towards the end. Our, our passage this morning in Hebrews 10 calls us to draw near to God in worship. And I hope, as you just heard of Nadab and Abihu drawing near to God in an unworthy manner, that that statement gives you pause for a moment. This is a serious matter to draw near to God in worship. I want to highlight before we get into the passage, just that it begins in verse 19 with a very serious conjunction. Therefore, if you're familiar with the book of Hebrews, this is a significant therefore, where the focus is shifting from primarily doctrine content about Christ as our high priest to shifting now to Here's how we must respond because Christ is our high priest. It's similar to the therefore in Romans 12.1. Uh, as Paul takes 11 chapters to unfold the, the, the righteousness of God that is revealed from faith and to faith. The gospel of God that is Paul is not ashamed to declare. He, he explained that for 11 chapters. Even God's uh, continued promise for Israel that we're in with Pastor Mark in 9-11. through 11. And he gets to chapter 12, verse 1, and says, Therefore, I urge you, I beseech you, by the mercies of God, to respond this way, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's how weighty this therefore is in chapter 10, verse 19 of Hebrews. He has just taken six chapters to say, Here is Christ, your great high priest. Now here's how to respond. I'll give you a simple overview of the passage, and we'll dive into it. He uh, gives three commands here. I grew up being told this is the lettuce patch of the New Testament. Why? Because all three of the commands begin with the uh, collective command, the imperative, let us. Verse 22, let us draw near. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession. Verse 24, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. These are the three driving commands of the passage. But before he gets to the commands, the author of Hebrews wants to, uh, in verse 19 through 21, give us all the reasons we would need to obey those commands. So let's begin in verse 19, seeing the way that the author frames up as we're going to make our way to the commands here is the motivation therefore brethren since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus note he addresses the church as brethren this is a church that he has warned over and over of apostasy you might wonder are these believers he believes they are he says he says brethren this is a, a term reminding them of their status before God and their relationship to one another. They need to understand that they are they are brothers of Christ according to uh, Hebrews two verse ten. They are the many sons being brought to glory. In Hebrews two eleven, Christ is not ashamed to call them brethren. Such precious truths he wants them to be reminded of. Therefore, brethren, he says, since we have confidence. This is a statement of fact. He is not telling us to have confidence as though it is a command. That would be an implication of this. But he is declaring we have confidence. We have every right to be completely confident to do what? To enter the holy place. Wow, that's a profound statement. Christians have Full confidence to enter the holy place. This is what we saw back in Leviticus 9, the tent of meeting that Moses and Aaron went into. The the most holy place, the holy of holies. Only the high priest could enter. and Only once a year. And only as he was bringing blood to pour out upon the altar, on the Ark of the Covenant, to atone for the people's sin. Coming into the holy place would be terrifying. This is the holy God... And I am a sinner deserving of his wrath, and I am coming into his presence. Just marvel at the fact that the author says we have confidence to enter the holy place. This term confidence is a, a term that's often used in secular Greek to describe someone just having an open boldness to say whatever they like. It's the idea they they come in and and there's nothing restraining them from saying exactly what they want to say. They have a, a confidence, a boldness. And in our context here, it means we have this open boldness, this absolute confidence to come into the presence of God as though we belong there. And here's the incredible statement. Believers are not out of place in the very presence of God. That is where we belong if you are in Christ. This would be absolutely impossible under the Old Covenant. Again, as we mentioned, the high priest, his job was terrifying. There was a long list of requirements that he must perform before he was able to enter the presence of God. And even then, it was such a short visit. He was, he was coming in with trembling. And here, believers have confidence to enter the holy place How can that be? Let's not miss this last phrase. Verse 19, by the blood of Jesus. Apart from this phrase, the first part of this verse would be impossible, and I would say insane. It would be insane for someone to boldly, confidently come into the presence of God without the blood of Jesus covering their sin, cleansing them from all defilement and unrighteousness but by the blood of jesus we have confidence let's look at verse 20 he expounds on why we have that confidence what has the blood of jesus opened for us by a new and living way we come into the presence of god by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh Christ opened a way for us to have access to God. This way is described as new, and this, this term new is uniquely only used here in the New Testament, but in secular Greek, carried the idea of, of something being freshly slain. The idea is this animal was just killed, it's still warm, it is as fresh as it can be. Here this way that Christ has opened for us is new, it is fresh. It's not like the way of the the Old Testament. It's not just a high priest entering into the holy place. This is different. He says this way is also living. Why is it living? Because the one who opened it has defeated death. He has risen from the grave. Yes, he did die and offering himself for our sin, but he did not stay dead he rose and he lives forevermore. Listen to Hebrews seven twenty-five. Therefore, he also is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. It's incredible. We can draw near to God through him. Why? Because our great High Priest is living. He always lives to make intercession. Notice what he says about this new and living way. It was opened for us through the veil that is his flesh. The veil would describe the entrance into the Holy of Holies. Just think of uh, an elaborate curtain, so to say, covering the entryway, going into the most holy place. No one was supposed to go in there except for the high priest. And this, this veil served as a barrier to say all the priests collectively would go in and minister in the holy place, but the most holy place behind the veil, only the high priest. That was the presence of God symbolized here on this earth. So the author uses this Old Testament imagery of the veil to say in a similar way, just as the entryway into the holy place was this large elaborate curtain to the specific details that God gave, The body of Christ serves to be the point of entrance for us into the presence of God. One can only come before the throne by way of the crucified body of Christ. Access to God is not through a curtain in a temple. It's not for a priest going to God on your behalf. It is through the shed blood and the broken body of Christ. We especially need to remember that as we come before the Lord at sharing in communion this morning. Verse 21 gives us yet another reason to heed the commands. It says, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, we have a great high priest over the house of God, therefore we should draw near. Notice he's giving us more reasons here because we have this. He's already described to us that we have this high priest here. What does he mean by over the house of God? This is referring back to what he's already taught on the house of God being the people of God. And in chapter three, verse six, he describes Christ being faithful over God's house as a son. And then he describes what God's house is, whose house we are. If we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope, firm unto to the end. What is he saying there? This house that God is building is the people of God that he is assembling through Christ. We are God's house. We have a great high priest over us, over the people of God, the house of God. All of those who are true believers are in this house, this household, this family of faith. We have a great high priest unlike all the rest. I would love to spend an hour walking through chapters 5 through 10 right now, unfolding all the riches of Christ as our high priest, but just take these bullet points for now. He is the only one qualified to be our great high priest because he came of an entirely different line than the line of Aaron. He came of the line of according to the order of Melchizedek. He is the high priest that was prophesied in Psalm 110. He offered the perfect sacrifice, not the blood of bulls and goats. He offered himself as a perfect sacrifice through the spirit and he made a full and final atonement. And he is now seated at the right hand of the Father because his atoning work is complete. And what is he doing there? We read in 725, he ever lives to intercede for us. Christ's sacrifice actually cleanses the worshiper, makes us perfect before the father and cleanses our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. Because we have this high priest. Now we come to our outline. We come to these commands in verses 22 to 24. My outline for you is three essential responses to the priestly ministry of Christ. I call them essential responses because They are not suggestions. They are indeed commands for us to obey. And at the same time, they are commands that are flowing out of, we have this great high priest. This is how we must respond because Christ is our access to the Father. Christ is our atonement for our sins. So here's what we must do. Verse 22, I call this, Confidently come to the Father. Confidently come to the Father. Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Draw near, again, is a favorite term for the author. He has used it seven times. I won't read each of those, but just refer to them. In Hebrews 4.16 he uses draw near to the throne of grace as an illustration for prayer. So certainly in this idea of drawing near to God is the idea of coming before Him for prayer. In that verse, he says, So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We are, we're drawing near to our God in prayer. In 725 that we read, he is just describing drawing near to Him in worship. It is certainly the idea of of us coming to our God to adore Him, coming to uh, praise Him for who He is and what He has done. Chapter 10, verse 1, uses the phrase, draw near, but says, the law can never make perfect those who draw near. So if you're drawing near to God through the law, you are coming in the wrong way. You cannot be made perfect and actually have access to the Father through the law. 11.6, it's a synonym for faith. He says, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God or draws near to God must believe. Must believe that he is who he says he is. He is and he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Drawing near to God is faith. It is what you do when you take God at his word. He uses it two more times in chapter 12 and Verse 18 and verse 22, and both of those are drawing near to God for worship. This is coming to God in faith, coming to Him in prayer, coming to Him in worship. And also want to highlight the nature of all three of these commands. It is coming to Him together. Uh, This is a corporate command. He is uh, giving this command in a first-person plural, let all of us, let all of us, let us draw near. This is a command for uh, coming to God in corporate worship. Indeed, what we are seeking to do this morning, he is commanding us to do so, to confidently come to the Father. And in what manner do we come? He says, with a sincere heart. We're not to come before God hypocritically with our own hidden agenda, like Nadab and Abihu in our scripture reading. We're not coming to God as a, a veiled attempt to actually worship ourselves where uh, we come and in corporate worship and we act in such a way or dress in such a way or sing in such a way or carry out whatever it is in such a way that we're wanting the attention for ourselves. He says, no, we draw near with a sincere heart. This is a, a true heart, one without a hidden agenda. This is coming to God to truly worship him as he has revealed himself in spirit and truth. He further says, we also come in full assurance of faith. This is a state of complete confidence, a certainty of acceptance. Just think about that again. We come with absolute confidence as we draw near to God in full assurance of faith. And you say, On what basis could we draw near with full assurance of faith? And he gives us uh, two participles here in the end of the verse to say, here's what has happened to us that allows us to draw near with full assurance. It says, we have had our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. This sprinkling, this washing is reflecting the ritual cleansing of the priests. So Aaron was told, he and the other priests in Exodus 29 uh, there was to be first a washing with water, Exodus twenty nine four, and then there was the sprinkling of blood from the altar to consecrate them for their priestly service. I believe that's what both of these participles are alluding to, is the priest being cleansed as he would draw near to God in worship. So what is the author of Hebrews saying? He's using that same idea of washing and sprinkling to say, here's what's happened to us. Our hearts have been sprinkled. Our inner man, Uh, our, uh, our true self before the Lord has been cleansed from an evil conscience. That is only because of the blood of Christ that our inner life could be cleansed. Furthermore, he says that our bodies are washed with pure water. The idea there is that we come before him, we draw near with certainty of our acceptance. Why? Because he's cleansed our lives inside and out. He he has done the work to purify us. There's no more ritual cleansing we could do to make us more acceptable. This is why we come in full assurance of faith. I just want to give one implication here. Do you understand that God would be unjust to refuse access to someone who is coming to his throne by the blood of Jesus? It's a startling thing to think about. God would be unjust if you are coming through faith in christ to draw near to him and worship god would be unjust to send you away why because the blood of christ has cleansed us from every sin every defilement we come before him clothed in the righteousness of christ that's why we could say in that song oh my soul arise shake off your guilty fears there's no more fear remaining for the believer Because we have been cleansed. It is our duty and our delight to confidently come to the Father. Let's look at the second essential response to the priestly ministry of Christ. Steadfastly cling to the confession. Steadfastly cling to the confession. He says in verse 23, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. This term hold fast is used three times in Hebrews and is a a common term in Greek just to have something and it has a preposition added to it to intensify it. So it's to to really have something. It it is to retain something faithfully, to keep something diligently. This is not how you hold on to or hold fast to a dollar off coupon. You know, it's like, oh, if I keep this around, it might benefit me for a dollar later. No, this is how you hold fast to the side of a mountain when you are climbing without a rope. To, To let go would be catastrophic. To let go would be terrible. We must hold fast. We must cling to our confession. He adds the phrase without wavering. Uh, This is further intensifying how we are to hold fast the confession. I, I take this adverbally, so it's modifying that holding fast, saying we're to hold fast unwaveringly. We're to hold fast in a way that is unbending, unswerving. We're not moving. There's no chance of us letting this go. We are holding with all tenacity to keep, to cling to our confession. What is this confession? This is the essence of the Christian faith the foundational truth the greek term for confession is a compound word it is made up of the word to speak and the word for the same so it is essentially it is saying the same thing so here the confession is saying the same thing as god it is agreeing with god what is our confession it is the very word of god we believe what god has said and we we cling to what god has said unwaveringly with, with tenacity with diligence we can't let this go why because god is the one who has said it he further describes this confession as the hope here you see it uh phrased there in the new american standard as of hope but i believe he is just restating the term confessions so we saying Let us hold fast the confession and I would just say the hope without wavering. So the confession and the hope are the same thing. What is this to mean? Our our hope is our confident expectation of what is to come and that confident expectation is saying the same thing that God has said. In other words, what we cling to is the word of God and what our hope in is the word of God. And the author provides us with the basis for this unwavering clinging to our confession. And it is not our supreme faithfulness. It's not our determination to cling to this confession so that you can beat others in an argument. So you can prove yourself right. So you can show how intelligent you are. How good of a debater you are. Notice the reason he says to cling so steadfastly. It is he who promised is faithful. We hold unswervingly to the word of God, to our confession of faith with unwavering conviction, because the one who gave us this word, the one who made this promise is faithful. He is true. Uh, Paul would tell Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, this is God breathed. All scriptures is, is inspired by God, breathed out by God. Paul tell Titus in Titus 1 that God cannot lie. So every word that he has said is true, is trustworthy. We must cling to it on the basis of his faithfulness. When God gave you a reliable word, you do not set it aside. You do not say, Yeah, it's, it's important for Sunday morning from about 9 to noon and then set it aside the rest of the week. No, he says, cling to your confession. Hold fast. This is your only hope. Our culture continues to spiral into greater and greater expressions of Romans 1 suppressing the truth of God and unrighteousness. And we must continue to hold fast unwaveringly our confession, our agreeing with God and what He has said. Why? Because our God is faithful. Let's look now at the third essential response to the priestly ministry of Christ. Lovingly consider one another. Lovingly consider one another. Verse 24, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Consider is the main verb of this verse, it is a a command to think deeply. Telling you all the compound words in Greek. So this is another compound word here. It is the, the basic noun for your mind. And then it is a preposition that describes being towards something. So it is to set your mind towards something in the most literal wooden fashion. But uh, you understand that is to carefully consider. You're, you're devoting your mind to this. You are giving thoughtful attention to something. What is it that we are considering? Well, that's actually the wrong question. The direct object of this verse is someone and not something. We should be asking, who are we considering? Because the direct object here is considering one another. Uh, In the Greek, I would translate the sentence this way, and consider one another. To stimulate love and good deeds. One another is what it is that we are considering or who it is that we are considering. This is the fellow believers around you in the local church. This is the people in this very room. As you look around, this command for you to devote your mind to something is devoting your mind to these people, to the the believers that were in the first service, the believers that are serving in children's ministry down the hall and down the fellowship hall and in the youth room right now. It is the believers that cling to the confession, that hold to the word of God, that commit themselves to coming together to minister to one another. We are to consider one another. Notice, he says, here's what you are to think about them. It's not just considering one another, like, oh, yeah, I do that all the time. Consider what so-and-so was wearing. I consider the way that so-and-so didn't say hi to me this morning. I consider the way that this person did this. No. We are to consider something specific, how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Stimulate here is a, a verb that describes stirring up or spurring someone on to something. This is the only time it's used positively in the New Testament, saying you're stirring up something good. It's often used negatively. What would that mean? That would be the idea of provoking someone to a negative response, what we as parents are always correcting. Children provoking one another to anger or to sin in Acts 15.39, this is the, the term that's used of the disagreement between Paul and Barnabas over John Mark. It's a, it's a provoking, a sharp provocation. What would this mean in a positive sense? It is to provoke or instigate someone to act in a godly way someone to be moved by your actions, by your words, by your ministry to them, they are now caused to have a greater love and greater expressions of good deeds. That's why we are deeply considering one another, because we want to cause one another to have greater love and greater expressions of that love and good deeds. Love is the supreme Christian virtue defining characteristic of every believer and good deeds is how that love is worked out so you might think of love as the internal disposition of the heart it is the vertical love for god the horizontal love for one another and then as you think of good deeds here just think this is how love manifests itself love manifests itself by what the scripture calls good deeds these are ephesians two ten, the good deeds that god prepared beforehand so that you would walk in them this is the life that god has called believers to live and here the command for us is to lovingly consider how can i provoke those around me how can i instigate the believers around me to have a greater expression of love for god love for others and a greater working out of that love in good deeds it should be our thought toward the other believers as we gather together this morning. He doesn't give us a list here of here's all the ways to stimulate one another to loving good deeds. He just tells us think deeply about it. You think, ah, oh, I wish there was like a checklist here. here. Do these three things to stimulate one another to loving good deeds. No, he says this requires your mental energy. Devote your minds to one another to consider how you may do this. What will yield the greatest spiritual benefit in this this brother or sister's life? What example can I set for them? What way can I serve them? What passage can I share with them to minister to them? How can I be a useful tool in the hand of God to minister to this brother or sister in Christ so that as a result of my ministry to them, they are motivated to a greater love, greater expressions of that love and good deeds? We cannot take this command lightly. This is part of our drawing near to God in worship, is considering how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. How many specific people in the body have you stimulated to love and good deeds this week? This is what we're commanded to do as believers. How much time have you devoted to considering how to stimulate them to a greater love and good deeds? Has this even been on your mental radar or or have you only thought about your own needs, your own desires? Can you imagine what it would look like for a congregation, for every one of us gathering together and all of us are coming together collectively considering how can I cause these believers around me to, to grow in love and good deeds? It would be incredible. There would be no such thing as a sign-up list. <laughs> Everyone would long to meet all the needs around them, and, and we would have to think more deeply because the, all those surface-level needs are already being met. Everyone that sees them is meeting them. They're, they're considering how to stimulate one another to loving good deeds. So we're now thinking deeply about how to do it. He tells us in verse 25 how to promote love and good deeds in one another's lives. And he gives us two present tense participles in verse 25. They are, one's negative, not forsaking, and the other is positive. It is encouraging one another. Here, I just want to remind you from our study in Romans 7 that present tense in the Greek is describing not just that you do something right now, but that it is an ongoing pattern of your life. Here is the pattern for believers who are considering one another. You are to not be forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. How do I stimulate love and good deeds? By not forsaking the assembly and by encouraging one another. If we are not assembling together, we will fail to consider how to stimulate one another to loving good deeds. You do not know how to provoke those around you to greater and greater expressions of godliness if you are not around one another if you 're not interacting with one another if you 're not coming together on the lord 's day to gather as the body of Christ and ministering to one another through the week. This term forsaking is a strong term the The weight of this term means he 's not talking about here the person who Was was sick and had to miss a Sunday or someone who had a, a vacation and they were out of town for a week. That's not the idea. This is a word that describes abandoning or deserting something or someone. This is someone who abandons the church. Uh, this assembling is the the church's weekly gathering of worship together through prayer and praise and giving and preaching and receiving the word and, and sharing in the Lord's table and baptism and all the collective ministry of the church that happens here on a Sunday morning. Those who claim Christ as their great high priest must not forsake the assembling of themselves in corporate worship. In in the church of the Hebrews, it was the habit of some, he says, as is the habit of some. This indicates there were people that were formerly with them committed to the church and now have, have abandoned, have forsaken the assembling of coming together. Now, in the context of Hebrews, likely a primary motivation would have been that they are facing increasing persecution. So they are wanting to not gather together as the church because... It could cost them greatly. Uh, Earlier in the book, their property is is being seized. Actually, that's the next passage, I'm sorry. Down in verses 32 to 40 in chapter 10, their property is being seized, and they're being afflicted for relating to believers that are suffering. So he certainly here would be reminding them the suffering is worth it. But for, for us, persecution is not so much a deterrent from gathering with the church. But what might be? I believe fear is a primary motivation. We saw that back during the COVID season, a, a fear of sickness. Uh, certainly, there, there was some justified reasoning to, to be concerned of getting sick. But, but ultimately, the, the believer wants to prioritize however possible, even if it means coming in a hazmat suit if needed, to, to be with the believers, to be around them, to be able to minister to their needs and know how to serve one another. It's crucial, and fear would keep us from that. Fear of man would also cause us to isolate ourselves. Fear that your child's going to get uh, corrected in children's ministry, and you have to get called out of service or class, wherever you're at. Fear of uh, uh, weakness or sin in your life being exposed. Fears will keep us from the assembly. Worldliness as well. A love of the world where our priorities are misplaced, where we do not prioritize gathering with the saints and drawing near to God in worship, but rather our, our hobbies, our, our other things are more important. Laziness would be a motivation. It's my only day to sleep in, so you know, I'll, just, I'll just catch it later on the internet and not have to be there in person. Greed. To say, that's another day I could work, I could make money, why would I I want to be at at church when I could be getting rich? Or just a lack of faith. They ultimately do not believe that they need the church as much as God says they do. Any of these or many others might be motivations in our heart that would keep us from gathering with the saints. I just want to make a brief comment that Internet Church cannot fulfill this command. You cannot know how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds by just watching the service online. We must be with each other. We must be ministering to one another, interacting with one another. How is your life going? How are you doing in these trials? How are you responding to this temptation? That way we can stimulate one another. In contrast to Forsaken the assembly, believers are to encourage one another he says, encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This encouragement is just coming alongside one another. It's often translated as an exhortation. You are you are lovingly exhorting them from beside them, not over the top of them as their authority, but lovingly coming alongside saying, brother or sister, how can I help you? Have you thought of this passage? I'm concerned of this area in your life. We must encourage one another, and he says, all the more, as you see the day drawing near, this further motivation for encouraging is that Christ is going to return soon. This is the day of Christ's return where he comes to deliver his saints and to judge his enemies. We are to all the more encourage one another in light of Christ's imminent return. I, certainly we don't have time for verse 26 to 31. I recognize that. We're not halfway through the sermon now. We're, we're at the end of it. But I do want to highlight uh, this warning passage that the author goes into in verse 26 to 31. Why? Because you notice the conjunction for begins verse 26. This is indicating that this severe warning of apostasy he's about to give in 26 to 31 is coming on the heels of him saying, Do not forsake assembling of yourselves together, but encourage one another all the more. Here's why. Here's another motivation. For if we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. The implication is that neglecting the corporate gathering of the church as a pattern of your life and, and to replace your commitment to the church with a, repla- uh, a commitment to your sin is putting you on the direct path to apostasy. If we go on sinning willfully or deliberately, this is the person who who makes provisions for the flesh. They plan out their sin. They plan how they're going to cover their sin. They, they profess to be a believer. It says, after receiving the knowledge of the truth. That's a a clear and certain knowledge. They know the gospel. They professed it. They were formerly a part of the body, but now they have gone away from the church and they have gone into their sin. He says of them, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. This once-for-all sacrifice of Christ that cleanses us from every defilement, gives us access to God and atonement, they have rejected it. They've said, I'll take my sin instead. So what do they await in verse 27? A terrifying expectation of judgment. This person in verse 29 is said to have trampled underfoot the Son of God. They've regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant. They've insulted the spirit of grace. This is no small thing, beloved, to abandon the church. It is not as though we can uh, choose in our own liking how we're going to worship God. Okay, going in person, that works for some of you. I'm just going to watch the church service online. I'm just going to call my golf outing or my fishing outing or whatever it is, my my hunting, my my church service. I, I heard that a lot growing up of, of men who would be out of the church for about four months during deer season. And they would say, I just have greater fellowship with God in a deer stand. And I... I, I just would want to bring a passage like this to their minds and say, beloved, you can't fulfill what God says to do and drawing near to Him and clinging to the confession and considering how to stimulate one another in isolation. It can't be done. This is how we are called to worship our God. We must not abandon the church, but rather we must embrace These three essential responses to the priestly ministry of Christ. To confidently come to the Father. Boldness. To steadfastly cling to the confession unwaveringly because God said it. And to lovingly consider one another. How can we cause one another to grow in love and expressing that love in godliness? This is how we are to approach our God and worship.